Hello, I'm Katherine Jansen, editor of Speculum, a journal of medieval studies. I'm thrilled to be with you today and to welcome you to Speculum Spotlight. This pilot podcast is a joint production of Speculum and the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast. Our vision is to feature in a 30-minute interview format one article and its author from the most recent issue of the journal, in this case, July 2023. The goal is not only to spotlight the scholarly contribution the research makes, but also to give you, the audience, a glimpse behind the scenes to explore the research, writing, and crafting of the essay with its author. Following the advice of the editorial board of the journal and the preferences of the MMA members, we've decided to use this pilot podcast to highlight the scholarship of an early career scholar. In this case, we have selected an article from the July issue entitled Transclimates of the European Middle Ages, 500 to 1300, by Francois Charmay, who is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of English at Christ College, University of Cambridge. Their articles have appeared in Exemplaria and Diacritics, and their doctoral research focuses on the relation between gender and grammar in Western European writing of the later Middle Ages. Our host, who is conducting and producing today's episode, is Logan Quigley, who received his PhD from the University of Notre Dame in 2022. So without further ado, I hand the mic over to Fran and Logan. I do want to thank you so much for joining me here today, Fran. It's really great to get to meet you and to chat with you about this. So before we dive in, I just want to review the abstract for this article. This article, Transclimates of the European Middle Ages, 500 to 1300, gathers evidence of a distinct strand of writing in Western Europe from the 6th century onwards, which concerns itself with the relation between the seasons and sexual difference in humans, and particularly in discussions of Tiresias. From this tradition emerges what this article calls transclimatology, a conceptualization of seasons as gendered, of the climatically ordered procession of the seasons as transgender change, and of this change having a direct effect on the bodies of people, or indeed of people's bodies having a direct effect on the climate. This article's aims are therefore threefold. Firstly, it uncovers a tradition of mythographical exegesis, or the climatological interpretation of the myth of Tiresias, and it shows that mythographies across the 500 to 1300 period engaged in a debate around the significance of Tiresias's transitions. Secondly, this article shows how two major literary works of the late Middle Ages, Alain of Lille's De Planck du Naturae and Jean de Mont's continuation of the Roman de la Rose, responded to this intellectual tradition. It's with these two texts that a fully-fledged transclimatology becomes actual discourse, rather than the potential implication it was in previous mythographical works. Thirdly, this article hopes to convince scholars, both inside and outside the medieval field, of transclimatology's import as an analytical concept. It therefore intervenes not only in medieval ecological studies, but also in the even younger field of medieval trans studies and their modern counterparts. 
So now that I've laid that out there, I want to heap a little bit of praise on trans climates. This article, it was such a wonderful read, both on an argumentative level, of course, but also I think in terms of the way you structure it, your writing itself, I was really taken with. It's really clear. It's it's very accessible. I think it's really intentionally structured in a way that I think makes your argument very present and again, very compelling. So I, I just have to say how much I enjoyed reading it. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's such a, a joy to be here. And well, I what qualities there are in the article are certainly not due to me alone. I'm not going to read through all the um, acknowledgements in the article, but they're very, they're very long for a reason. A lot of people have helped me out and uh, all the editors for Speculum have done a really tremendous job of publishing this piece and making it ready for the publication. It's been such a, a brilliant experience. And this is a wonderful way to to celebrate that for me yes that's something that i'd actually be really interested in hearing more about is the the writing process that went into this piece you know starting with maybe the discovery origin point where did you come upon this idea how did you get started i i came so the the article the article is structured chronologically and i came to this topic in a reverse chronological order so when I was studying for my master's, I was writing about this 13th century French poem, The Romance of the Rose. And I was writing, a, doing a, a trans reading of The Romance of the Rose. And the person who was supervising my master's work, Sylvia Hewitt, uh, who's a really brilliant scholar. At one point I was noticing that there was some strange things going on with gender, and with the seasons in The Romance of the Rose. And Sylvia said, well, I've seen something, I've seen something related in the Ovid Moralisé, the Moralized Ovid, which is a verse translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses from the mid-14th century. And that, that verse translation comes with very extensive interpretations of each of the myths and the metamorphoses and in the Ovid Moralisé there's this idea that Tiresias represents the seasons and the seasons of genders and that's that's where Sylvia had seen it and she suggested that I link this to the Romance of the Rose but it was a bit awkward because I was analyzing the Romance of the Rose in light of something that had been written about a century later so I thought well you know this is just like a couple it ended up just being a couple sentences in the piece but it was like an interesting an interesting little uh, concept that the seasons have genders. And then I started work on my PhD dissertation and I was working on the plaint of nature, De Plancto Nature, uh, which is a 12th century uh, work of literature by Alan of Lille. And as I was write, writing on the plaint of nature, I saw it again. I saw the seasons and gender and I said to my um, the supervisor for my PhD dissertation, I've seen this before in such and such. Uh, maybe I should look into this. And Philip Knox, my PhD uh, supervisor, he said, yes, you should. You should look into it. Uh, and he directed me towards Fulgentius, towards the history of mythographical writing. So the tradition of writing about classical myths in the Middle Ages. And I dove into that and fell down this huge rabbit hole and that's how the, the article came to be so it was a traveling backwards in time uh, along quite a, a weird reverse line 
you do such a good job of balancing eight centuries of sources across a, a really wide geographical area, sources that speak to each other, but also do not necessarily reference one another directly. And that's one of the things that I was really struck by with your argument. You point us toward how all of these sources speak to one another, invoke one another, echo one another, and participate in this tradition. And it's this tradition that you track across so, so much time. So I wonder what that experience was like for you trying to track a discourse of thought or maybe multiple discourses and modes of thought across eight centuries, uh, how you bring that together in your writing and how you balanced all of that. I think that it's very easy to rile up a medievalist by saying, this is a medieval idea, this is medieval, this is medieval, this is medieval. It's very irritating. From my perspective, as someone who works a lot in um, intellectual history, literary history, um, if anything is medieval, then it's the stability of the canon. It's this sense that people in Western Europe, writers are constantly returning to the same texts, and there's either a very strong constancy or a very strong awareness among the writers of their lineage. So in the case of mythography, Fulgentius's uh, mythologies is really such a permanent presence that it allows certain patterns to repeat across very long spans of time in ways that are very consistent, that are very easy to identify. If you look at the, the title of my article, it's got the time span 500 to 1300. That's enormous. It's ridiculous. It, it doesn't make any sense. But I can do that, I think, because I'm looking at something extremely specific. It's 800 years off the climatological interpretation of Tiresias. It's a very, very narrow topic. And I think if you're looking at something very, very specific, something that's thematically very specific, mm -hmm. you can draw a, a very temporally wide net for your analysis. That's a great point. Speaking of thematic specifics, I'd like to follow up on and dig into that concept, your concept that you've coined here of transclimatology, specifically as it relates to Tiresias, uh, his experience, their experience, her experience across time. You also track it as it occurs, as it's attached to Tiresias, but also as it unfolds outward and flourishes across different kinds of literature, different kinds of writing. I was wondering, first of all, if you might talk us through transclimatology, how you see it, and how you perceive it to be analytically useful for people in our field of medieval studies, but also more broadly. I define transclimatology as a way of thinking about the seasons as gendered and of the climate as transgender change. If you believe that the seasons have genders and that those genders are different from one another, if you think summer is feminine and winter is masculine, then that means that the climate, which is the procession of the seasons uh, across a year, for example, that makes the climate transgender because it's the passage from one season to the next. And I also more narrowly define transclimatology as thinking of the seasons as gendered, the climate as trans, and of that gendering of the seasons having some kind of effect on human bodies or human bodies having some kind of effect on the climate. Because gender, transness, these are 
certainly what we think of as human concepts or concepts of the human. If that those concepts apply to the climate and to seasons, that means that there's some kind of relation. And that could, for example, be a causal relation. One of the points that you make so so thoughtfully in your article, and I think it's also with reference to other discourses of transness, uh, Nicole Seymour's idea of organic transgenderism comes to mind and, and is something you bring up. But this notion of transness in your reading as something that extends beyond the biotic sphere and into the abiotic, climates, of course, being something that are kind of outside what we traditionally think of as life, but something that nevertheless is incredibly fruitful for us to think of with relation to transness, transgenderism, trans studies. So for you, what is the importance of invoking the abiotic or of extending this this realm of study and of thought? This relates to what you were just asking me about what I think the the, the import of, of transclimatology as a, as a concept is. I think that this relates to just how expansive this transclimatological thinking is. Because in Nicole Seymour's concept of organic transgenderism, she's pulling out a modern and contemporary intellectual thread, which is identifying, for example, certain kinds of fish that change sex and saying this showcases uh, that there's there's an organic precedent or organic reflections to, for um, human transgenderism. Mm. And with transclimatology, this medieval strand of thinking that, is, that extends beyond the biotic and to the climate. And really, I, I think now... And other people have also pointed this out to me. Thinking about going beyond the the organic, the biotic, into the the climate, the the planetary sphere is already it's 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 thinking too small. Really, I could have spoken about a cosmology of transness because um, I, I talk in the section on the romance of the rose. I talk about the castration of Saturn. That event and the the trans mythology of Saturn is reflected in in medieval astronomy as well and and in in medieval cosmology and the what anchors transclimatology in my opinion is the relation the notion of the human body as a microcosm for the universe and if the human body is the microcosm then the macrocosm is is everything else and so so transness becomes truly universal uh in that optic so that's that that's the the ridiculously daring affordance of transclimatology as a concept in that extends transness to the, the, the furthest reaches of the known universe. Thinking about how, again, this extends outward to the furthest reaches of the universe um, and, and the various applications this has, how important time and temporality is in your understanding of transness, of transclimatology. You know, I think one of the points you make so well is the way the climate, the singular and, and, and encompassing climate comprises the seasons, the independent seasons that flow into one another. And I think you compare this to Carolyn Dinshaw's idea of the now, the, the kind of present. That's something that I'm really curious to also hear you talk about is how you see temporality playing into your understanding as you lay it out in this article of transclimatology, and also maybe what we might understand differently about time, the way you've come to understand it differently through your study. The the way that this Dinshaw's concept of the, the queerness of time, that 
comes in with the, the, the Third Vatican Mythography, which was probably written by Albrecht of London in the 12th century. This continuation of the, the mythographical tradition that is really outstanding for its wealth of uh, sources and its, its intellectual agility. And one thing that this text does is synthesize two seemingly contradictory ways of gendering the seasons. And the way that Alberic gets out of an apparent bind, which is to say that autumn is a, a season of insemination, which uh, is feminine in one uh, scheme and masculine in another, how to, to, to make that make sense while combining these two schemes, he says, it's okay, autumn is masculine, not because of any of autumn's properties, but because it's tending towards winter. So because winter is masculine, then autumn, which is somehow pulled towards or oriented towards winter, is masculine as a result of that. And so autumn's future, but also probably its pasts, because it's also preceded by a bunch of winters, um, is what determines its gender. And that, it seems, resonates with the way that Dinshaw thinks about time enabling surprising points of contact across and between moments in time and across and between different durations. So that's one that's one thing. And then and then uh, another answer to, to the question in terms of how transclimatology and the interpretation of Tiresias relates to time. One thing that's very, very surprising that was it was surprising to me when I undertook this research is that the this medieval tradition of interpreting Tiresias completely transforms the meaning of, of Tiresias's transformation. Because in the classical version in, in the Greek and Latin sources, it kind of looks like what we would we would call a, a story of detransition. Tiresias was turned into a woman and then she turned back into a man and then he was a man uh, for the rest of his life and then in, in the underworld after that. But this medieval tradition that looks at Tiresias as an allegory for the climate locks Tiresias into a cycle of transition and so uh, turns gender fluidity into a sort of condition of time within a, a temperate climate at the very least. I'm thinking also about this discussion of time and, and specifically your point about the way seasons slide into one another. We, we you know, we, we talk about them so discreetly, summer and then autumn and then winter. But like you've mentioned, they slide into one another. Autumn is always anticipating, hearkening toward, kind of yielding to winter. The beginning of winter is essentially the end of autumn. Let's just say there are multiple ways of understanding and seeing the seasons. And it's this multiple ways of knowing that I think, again, you treat really well and thoughtfully in your article. One of the points that you make specifically is the way that you, in your own research, worked to delineate between, but also understood that it's enormously difficult to delineate between medical and literary writings from the Middle Ages, but especially medical and literary writings uh, that pertain to this subject. So I'm curious if you might lay out for me here and, and for anyone listening some of the differences in the ways of knowing that your medieval sources were working with, maybe then the ones we have today, and also then potentially 
reflect on what we might learn from those different ways of knowing for our own present time? This is very important to me, and this is this is certainly this is a a sort of small micro argument that I like to sneak into different projects about the nature of medieval pedagogy in Western Europe and of epistemology in that time and place as well. There was a very, I think that generally speaking, the intellectual culture modeled pedagogy disciplines and epistemology very differently. Uh, and we can see this in the the epitaph for one of the authors that I cover in the article, Alan of Lille again. His epitaph says he knew the two, meaning probably the two testaments of the Bible. Um, he knew the seven, that's the seven liberal arts. He knew all that is knowable, which is a pretty amazing thing to say about someone. You, I don't think that many people would claim about anybody else in our uh in our world uh uh this person knows all that is knowable maybe chat gpt <laughs> um i think you might want to say oh well that's because they just they were just they just knew fewer things uh back in the middle ages and that's something that we would certainly want to rebel against i think that when People thought about the seven liberal arts, which structured a lot of knowledge and a lot of learning in the Middle Ages. They thought about them not in terms of their objects. They didn't have epistemological silos that were defined by their objects. So these people think about numbers and these people think about music and these people think about grammar. They thought about different disciplines as embodied habits and as cognitive practices, cognitive techniques. Uh, and the word art is so important here. It's the seven the seven liberal arts. They're, they're kinds of they're kinds of practices, habits, skills is fundamentally what they are. And when you think about knowledge that way, that allows for these wild combinations of ideas. So in the sources that the article covers, you have climate science, medicine, and the study of classical myths all coming together to create this, this extraordinary explosion of, of weird ideas about, about gender and about the climate. And that's that's really that 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 is enabled by this what I would call an almost horizontal conception of knowledge or, or, or a, a conception of knowledge as a skill. And that's, I don't know if that's a better way of thinking about knowledge than what we have now, but I would at least say that that's something that we should be mindful of when we're thinking about the Middle Ages, when we're thinking about the past, and when we're looking at medieval sources, we have to keep in mind that they had this very different conception of knowledge. I see echoes of it in, and I don't know if, if you'd agree, but I, I feel like I see echoes of this in the debates that we have today across the world about the the value of the humanities, of, of, of subjects like literature. These are really important ways for people to learn, not only learn content about the world, but to put together their understanding of how reality works, what reality is. You bring up the anachronism objection. 
it's difficult to apply concepts from the modern era from today to historical literature to historical documents. And I wonder if you might reflect a little bit on what you see, whether there is value in the anachronism concern, but also I think what we stand to gain from maybe dispensing with the anachronism concern and maybe reframing it or re-understanding what anachronism is. Thank you. So those are two, yes, I think the, the, two two very different questions there so my the way that i address the the anachronism concern in the article is that one very familiar form of the the anachronism objection is essentially a way of naturalizing present the the present hegemony of for example uh, a cisexist dogma of uh, trans exclusionary notions so if people tell, if I say, oh, I, I study transness in medieval culture and people tell me, oh, they didn't have trans people back then, that's a, an accusation of anachronism, which really just imports our own construct of cissexism into the past. So if we're thinking about Tiresias specifically, uh, oh, you can't say that Tiresias is trans because he was really a man, I guess one might say. And this demand to really be one gender and for that gender to be congruent with the sex we were assigned at birth, this is um, this is a modern construct. And so if we want to truly be alert to anachronism when writing about gender in the Middle Ages, what we should be primarily keeping keeping in mind is that there were there, there, there were no such cissexist assumptions many sources very clearly demonstrate that in medieval western europe not everyone thought that sex was binary and in this case in the case of, of my article it's very important uh, to point out that there was not this entrenched assumption that you have to be the same gender your whole life and that that gender has to be congruent with the sex you were assigned at birth. So I, I'm sort of turning the the, the anachronism uh, accusation around, and very often the Middle Ages are imagined as the hinterland of our contemporary reactionary notions. And that's that's very anachronistic in itself. At the same time, I would personally try to keep anachronism itself as a as a notion for, for my own scholarship i think that it's a useful way to think about how much of my own ideas my our own era's ideas i'm bringing to these sources it's 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 useful to think about it to keep it in mind because if i maintain this awareness i think that that actually allows for the sources to speak back to me more forcefully. I think that transclimatology is not a notion that would readily emerge from our contemporary culture, and I think that it is all the more useful because it is strange to us in a way. I think that this question of anachronism is really important because I think one of the things that you do really well is 
in your article and and throughout this this conversation has been to help us think about how we might adjust our posture to historical sources maybe it's adjusting our expectations about what we what we might find there maybe it's adjusting the kinds of baggage we put on the sources um, and then the strictures that we that we bind them with what do we stand to gain from adjusting our posture to the past to the medieval past specifically I think the, the there's there's a real sometimes when when we say and this is very there's something that's very important to liberation struggles that are at the center of this article which is which are the, the struggle for trans liberation and the struggle for an end to the climate crisis in both of these cases the demand is really articulated in in a kind of assertion maybe a hopeful assertion maybe a performative assertion that things could be different but that sounds that can sound a little bit hollow especially when we're living in very scary times and a very powerful way of showing to ourselves that things could be different is to listen out for that which was different in the past and that's not to say that things were better <laughs> But it showcases the possibility for change, for rupture, for variation. And those possibilities become alive through a kind of anachronistic contact and through the, the, the seeing something completely alien emerge, this idea of a gender-fluid prophet who is also a microcosm for... Um, the world's climate um, is it's a it's a window into a different kind of relation to the environment and to uh, other human animals as well. I'm wondering, in terms of continuing conversations, continuing scholarship, what's next for you, and um, is there anything that you'd like to highlight here for anyone listening? Um, well. For me, um, I th this this project is actually running parallel to my doctoral work. It's not it does it doesn't come straight out of my my dissertation. So, the the continuation of my thinking about transclimatology might be a little bit delayed, unfortunately. But I I hope that the article will give people enough to 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 think with and and to to work with, um, in the future. For now, until I actually get around to expanding it myself. Would you give us a little preview of what your doctoral research is is pursuing? Oh. Uh, so I, I, I'm thinking about uh, grammatical gender and what we now call gender. So that's, yeah. Um, and then um, if people want to read more of my thoughts about medieval medicine and sex difference, I have an article in Exemplaria about Hildegard of Bingen's uh, Causet Curie. And if people want to read more of my thoughts about anachronism, I have an article in Diacritics uh, about Michel Foucault and the medieval historian John Boswell. And the last thing I want to spotlight is that I'm not the first person, the first trans person to have claimed Tiresias. There is a really awe-inspiring charity in Mexico that's called Casa de las Muñecas Tiresias. So that's the House of Tiresias Dolls. And they have opened now three shelters across Mexico for trans women, for sex workers and other vulnerable people. Uh, and I encourage people to check out their work and donate if they're able to. 
Tiresias is out there doing great work and you are too. And I'm so glad you got to share it with us today. Thank you again for joining me. I'm confident that everybody really enjoyed listening to this because I really enjoyed getting to talk with you. Thank you again so much, Fran. Have a wonderful weekend and take care. Thank you. You too. Before signing off, let's give credit where credit is due. Thanks go to the MMA series producers, William Beatty, Jonathan Correa, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley, who accepted my proposal for this collaboration with such enthusiasm and goodwill. I'd also like to thank the members of the Speculum Editorial Board who also enthusiastically supported this project, and particularly Mohamed Balan, who was signed on as one of the episode producers. I also want to acknowledge the Speculum staff, Taylor McCall, Carol Anderson, and Jane Mashew, and at the Medieval Academy of America, the Graduate Student Committee, Lisa Fagan Davis, Executive Director, and Chris Cole for his technical support on this project. Music for the MMA is by Anna O'Connell. I'm Katherine Jansen, editor of Speculum, a journal of medieval studies. Speculum is the journal of the Medieval Academy of America and is published quarterly by the University of Chicago Press.